This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Breaking Things at Work, The Luddites Are Right About Why You Hate Your Job, by Gavin Mueller. Breaking Things at Work is an innovative rethinking of labor and machines, leaping from textile mills to algorithms, from existentially threatened knife cutters of rural Germany to surveillance-sevading truckers driving across the continental United States. Mueller argues that the future stability and empowerment of working-class movements will depend on subverting these technologies and preventing their spread wherever possible. The task is intimidating, but the seeds of this resistance are already present in the neo-Luddite efforts of hackers, pirates, and dark web users who are challenging surveillance and control, often through older systems of communication technology. Breaking Things at Work, The Luddites Are Right About Why You Hate Your Job, by Gavin Mueller, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What is so-called cancel culture? Why has it emerged as arguably the issue in right-wing politics? Why, in other words, are conservatives so focused on Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head at a time when they can't think of any sort of compelling politics to oppose Joe Biden's big spending? And how does today's cancel culture discourse differ from the anti-PC politics that first emerged in the early 1990s? How do we distinguish between liberal opponents of PC like Jonathan Chait and right-wing ones like Donald Trump? And what does the fact that they share this single obsession reveal? And then, finally, is there a there there? However fundamentally reactionary and bad faith and mystifying the cancel culture discourse is, how much of a smokescreen it provides for all sorts of attacks on every sort of movement for freedom, are there indeed ways that we treat one another, particularly online and very particularly on Twitter, that are damaging and worth reflecting upon? Perhaps no discourse is more beleaguering than the cancel culture discourse, but unfortunately it is not going away. Indeed, it has moved into the very center of American politics. And so today, I've invited on three smart people to have a complicated and important discussion. Moira Weigel, Nikhil Paul Singh, and Patrick Blanchfield. I will link to some essays that informed our discussion by Weigel, Asad Haider, and Stuart Hall in the show notes. One thing we touch on a number of times but do not get into enough in this episode is what the speech debate means when it's mostly about the rules for speech on privatized social media platforms? That, of course, is an essential question, and I will definitely address it more in future episodes. Before we start this interview, if you are a dedicated listener and you can afford to support The Dig, please take a moment to do so now at patreon.com slash the dig. We do not use the soft coercion of paywalls to get you to contribute because we really want everyone to be able to listen regardless of your ability to pay. But that only works because those of you who can afford to support us do so at patreon.com slash the dig. If you haven't contributed yet or your contribution lapsed a while back, please take a moment to donate now. 
I really do appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here we go. Moira Weigel is a postdoctoral fellow at the Data and Society Institute, incoming professor at Northeastern University, and founding editor of Logic Magazine. She co-edited the book Voices from the Valley with Ben Tarnoff and is writing a book on anti-political correctness. Nikhil Paul Singh is professor of social and cultural analysis and history at New York University and faculty director of NYU's prison education program. His most recent book is Race in America's Long War. Finally, Patrick Blanchfield is an associated faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. His book, Gunpower, The Structure of American Violence, is forthcoming from Verso. Moira Weigel, Nikhil Paul Singh, and Patrick Blanchfield, welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Good to be here. This debate has in many ways been with us for decades, if not longer, but recently things seem to have reached a new and very weird level entirely. This year's CPAC theme was America Uncancelled. Cuomo declared that he would not bow to cancel culture in response to rampant sexual harassment allegations, and Trump's second impeachment defense lawyers called the proceedings constitutional cancel culture. And then there's the drama with Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, Dr. Seuss, Disney World. There's a long history behind this moment, and we're going to get into a lot of it. But just to start, why has cancel culture, so-called cancel culture, somewhat suddenly become arguably the dominant theme in right-wing politics? It seems to me that because one thing that really fascinates me, and as, as you were just saying, Dan, you know, we see like different iterations of this, of this kind of moral panic or debate over the decades that attaches to different terms, whether it's political correctness, cultural Marxism, identity politics, wokeness, whatever. It strikes me that this most recent iteration around cancel culture specifically goes back to the uprisings last summer, right? That it's sort of around after the killing of George Floyd, that this becomes a major topic, at least in legacy media publications. And it strikes me too, um, and what I'm about to say is also a theme that recurs throughout the history of these debates, is that there's sort of a right-wing version and then like a more liberal centrist version, if we want to call it that, playing out in tandem that contributes to the already sort of confusing array of, of meanings and terms going around in the field. Uh, but I think, you know, I tend to think that we have, as a culture, we have these big debates in moments where there's a kind of contest going on over the public sphere. And not that I think there is one, the public sphere, that's part of the issue. But when there's some kind of crisis or contest with existing media institutions, and then... Yeah, crises over meaning. And I think that the uprisings over last summer and then some of the issues that came up around the big tech platforms uh, with the Capitol insurrection. And I think that we're seeing another one of these these moments that takes different forms for the right and the center, uh, but of crisis over like who gets who supposedly should get to control the public sphere, like who has cultural hegemony and the eternal use of terms like political correctness and cancel culture as objects of outrage is that they're able to kind of 
interpolate a public or a community without having to build it at all, right? Because it's it's very othering. It's like these other people are doing something illegitimate in this space. Um, so I think, yeah, it maybe reflects a moment of a kind of confusion and contestation for both of those two different constituencies that feels to me like it's been playing out since the Harper's Letter and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor in the summer. Uh, but I'd be curious with the other when the other guests think this most recent wave of, of cancel culture conversation started. Nikhil? I, I'm not sure how to answer when it started. I do think that when I think back to George Floyd and the George Floyd rebellion, that the, the right, and I think the Trump campaign in particular, was really hopeful that they would be able to latch back onto law and order, you know, that there would be something like a backlash. And I think a lot of centrists were worried about that too. And that certainly didn't materialize. So just kind of riffing off Moira riffing, I want to say that the turn to cancel culture in some ways is another signal of, of, of weakness on the right. And they don't have much to latch onto. The things that they thought they could latch onto that would be very effective in in kind of turning the public um, against social movements and reform currents that have been gaining strength during the Trump years hasn't worked. And at the same time, I think the, the, the weakness of the right, which has been a theme I've been harping on for a while with Dan, too, in previous conversations, is seeking to exploit what is seen as a weakness in, in the left. And I think that that may be an interesting thing for us to, to explore here. And I think this goes to Moira's two, two iterations of cancel culture, the kind of, the kind of center left anxiety about left overreach and then the right's effort to run with this as a moral panic and to make it into something that's about kind of new totalitarian currents that are kind of overwhelming the country or something, you know? So I think that, that, that there is, that there are two things to, to talk about there that, um, that we'll probably need to talk about differently and differentiate a little bit. Patrick. Something, I, I think the question of power is so key and like these anxieties over who has power and how is power to be properly used in a moment of recalibration or, 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 or what, whatever it is post Trump, if we even want to speak in those terms. But I, I, for me, like this phrase cancel culture, like I'm sure it's, it's popped up prior. Right. But something about a specific, just this phrase and thinking about hearing the phrase and, and I forgive me for exercising this, like this brain word, but I think of that, that Nazi play by Hans Joost Schlageter where it's something where you get the line that's often attributed to Goring, but isn't where it's like, when I hear the phrase cancel culture, I reach for my revolver or I un undo this the safety on my Browning or whatever. Like for me, like when I hear the phrase cancel culture, I, I, I don't know what to reach for at this point, but the thing that immediately comes to mind, per the two of you talking about it and like the pathways my own mind runs is I, I reach for psychoanalysis. Right. And like, for me, like I hate to bring out like the big metaphorical guns early. So like, <laughs> we're going to talk about power. It's, but there's a castration anxiety here. Right. It's like we, the right no longer has power. Right. And, and is in this, this position of what I would describe as being a kind of hystericization. And I'd love to talk more about hysteria in these terms. And meanwhile, a lot of the people on the center was sort of liberal space, right, which is so right to begin with, are wrestling with these like normative questions of, well, we have power, but we don't really want to use it, or we have power, but we wanted to bring it back to a status quo that never wasn't really working in the first place. And so it produces these kinds of um, acute articulations of distress that both reflect certain 
anxieties, traumas, like worries, right? But, but that sort of distort it in these collective symptomatic expressions that are all about directing fears of the other, but appealing to others to sort of bring you in. And there's this odd, like, luxuriation in the victimization that's happening. It's, it's thoroughly perverse is what I'm getting at. And I think that's, uh, that's something we should explore for sure. And I think just as if I can riff on the riffs to my riff just really quickly, I do think there is, when I was, when I said this thing that I feel like cancel culture specifically, I associate to last summer, um, I mean specifically that phrase and these lexical shifts from like, and, you know, and a lot of these terms like political correctness, like identity politics are appropriated from left wing contexts or from, you know, from other contexts and they end up being used in. And I think about cancel culture specifically coming out of black Twitter and coming out of forms of like reading and calling out, uh, I think. These moments, I'd be really interested to riff not just on hysteria and psychoanalysis, which I always love to talk about, and who better to talk about it with than than Platt Blanchfield, but but also, like, what is it that makes people reach for one term rather than the other in a particular particular moment? And how do these half-known or maybe even unknown sort of, like, histories of, of those terms then shape the forms of othering work that they do? Because I think... It's significant that cancel culture um, comes out of Black culture and sort of like verbal expression. And I think also I'm very interested in the work that culture does as sort of a word that's like systemic and othering as well as as well as cancel. So, yeah, I just wanted to flag that like the specificity of cancel culture as a phrase is, is interesting to me and why it sort of gains purchase with, uh, I believe, David Bromwich's son writing in the New York Times in that in that moment uh, last summer. Let's get into the longer history before we return to the more recent history and present, starting with cancel culture's antecedent, which was political correctness. And Moira, you wrote a great essay about this for The Guardian a few years ago, and you wrote that PC started as a joke among leftists. What sort of joke was it, and then how did it get taken up by liberal and conservative opponents of the left? Yeah, so I should say, um, you know, in in the article that you're mentioning, I give this history of PC that I think think is a good history. I get nervous. I was thinking about Stuart Hall's essay on PC before this conversation and and thinking, oh gosh, am I engaging in my own like politics of revelation or whatever, that it's like the one origin of PC. So I think there are probably multiple points of origin for a term as widespread as PC, but the history that I pointed to in that article is of the term being used as sort of an in-joke or in a slightly ironic, self-ironizing way. I'd compare it to how people sometimes talk about being woke now um, in a slightly self-critical way. Um, Folks, I spoke to and read on the topic, hypothesized, although again, this is the kind of thing that's probably ultimately unprovable, that the the term sort of gained purchase in in the networks they were in, in the... 60s and 70s following the translation of the Little Red Book in 1957 in his speech uh, on the handling of, on the correct handling of contradictions among the people. Mao uh, talks about, it's like the correct way politically to handle contradictions. Uh, And he 
ironically, this is the the speech where he says, you know, let let a hundred flowers, let a thousand flowers bloom um, as a pretext to then knock off everyone who criticizes him. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, that's so it's it's a like complicatedly embedded term. But folks I talked to when I was researching that article talk about remembering the term circulating in the 60s and 70s as a kind of self-aware, self-ironizing term um, that at least partly came from or was alluding to like the stiltedness or self-consciousness of this little of these little red book translations. Uh, And it circulates in all kinds of ways. Tony Cade Bambara uses it in an essay uh, talking about Black power and specifically sort of bad gender politics in the Black power movement. And I'd say it's used as a kind of way of ironizing self-righteousness within one's own movement. There's a great uh, event in the in the 80s in the context of the sex wars, too. There's this uh, speak out on politically incorrect sex that's hosted by lesbian sex mafia in 83 or 84, I want to say, at the same time as the famous anti-porn conference. And again, I'd say, you know, it's not that it's not a combative term in that context. We have these more libertarian many of them lesbian feminists sort of critiquing this sanctimony or bad gender politics as they see it that's that's being that's being formed in the women against porn movement but i do think there's something of a sense of everyone involved in the conversation having at least some of the same goals being sort of on the same side like there's a there's an internal dialogue and and critique going on um so yeah, and then the term really gets taken up in the in the late eighties, early nineties by the right and the New York Times, and then blows up and has its 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 later life from there. But that's one version of the short history. How did it get picked up as a pejorative term, and how did that pejorative term fit into the broader culture war politics of that era? Thinking back to things like the Christian coalition and the new right obsessing over gay people having sex and marrying, contraception, abortion, also all of the sort of new democratic and Republican attacks on rap music and black culture and black people being pathologized as 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 welfare recipients and criminals. What what role did political correctness how did it become a pejorative term and what role did it play in the in the broader culture war politics? You know, it's picked up, and I don't want to be overly schematic about this, but I think in the 80s and 90s, as now, there is sort of this simultaneous, almost simultaneous pickup by people who would describe themselves as right-wing or identify as right-wing, and then people who would self-describe or identify as, like, reasonable centrists. Um, So, for instance, you see the term circulating in the early 90s in far-right contacts like coming out of the Free Congress Foundation, sort of the same folks who are publishing on the cultural Marxism conspiracy like Bill Lind in the early 90s are using that term interchangeably, cultural Marxism that is, which uh, is a Nazi term and we could have a whole other conversation about originally with political correctness. At the same time, around 1990, uh, as part of this broader culture war framing largely though not exclusively focused on the university, I'd say. Um, You see publications like Newsweek and the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal sort of running the article that it's been running ever since, uh, talking about, you know, political correctness gone mad on on U.S. university campuses. Uh, And I think 
One thing I'd just say about PC, part of what's really fascinating about it to me as a piece of political rhetoric is it it becomes this very flexible kind of container for different kinds of criticisms and accusations. And in fact, you know, years ago when I was writing that article, I was going through all of these media stories from the early 90s about PC. And I feel like it's almost a topos of those of those articles that what's politically correct involves this hodgepodge of things. So I feel like article after article in a place like Newsweek will say, you know, you're not supposed to say pets, you're supposed to say animal companion. And also you're not supposed to have plastic bags and you're supposed to like, like this book and all, you know, and this article about Jane Austen masturbating or whatever. And it's like almost, I mean, that is a topos that is appears all the time that it's like this flexible container that can contain a almost ridiculous variety of things, but that are mostly I'd say associated with the tastes um, and self-fashioning of like liberal college educated uh, elites of various kinds. Um, but yeah, sorry, I can't remember quite where I was going with this, but I think what's interesting to me about it is that it is first and foremost, a kind of structure of accusation, I'd argue, and it can kind of organize political feeling and ends up being able to um, yeah, to encompass an almost bewildering variety <laughs> of, you know, signifiers. I always think of Trump there was some incident at the Kentucky Derby a few years ago where a horse was like, some horse won and then another horse was brought in and Trump said, this is disgusting political correctness. And I always just think of this as like, um, just the ultimate demonstration of how far that signifier can stretch. Um, but yeah, so anyway, in the early, in the late 80s, early 90s, it's sort of taken up as a term both by right-wing think tanks and by cultural commentators like Richard Bernstein in the New York Times, and then really takes on a life of its own as a form of common sense uh, from there, I'd say. Nikhil? Um, I mean, that's so fascinating, everything that, that was just laid out. And I think it is it is a really interesting and kind of impacted history of kind of intra-left debate that can kind of spills out. And, and, and we certainly could keep pushing the genealogy back in time and find the different tributaries. The thing that I'm reminded of in terms of the 1990s is that it is a moment that has some similarities with now, which is that there's a kind of um, an incipient break from Reaganism, or at least an imagine, we imagine there's going to be a kind of a, a progressive shift with the emergence of, of Bill Clinton, right? And at that point, the Democratic Party is kind of managing different signals Right. So it's managing signals to progressives or emerging progressives uh, around policy, especially. And then it's ma managing signals about how it's how it's it's going to try not to alienate the right in certain kinds of ways and particularly around racial politics. You know, and I think there's those there's those, those two significant moments where Clinton makes sure to kind of shun Jesse Jackson and he makes sure to dress down Sister Solja, right? And that Sister Solja moment gets referred to in the media. It's one of these meta meta moments, right? Clinton's Sister Solja moment is the moment where he shows he's not going to, you know, quote unquote, kowtow to progressives or or be kind of um, rate kind of allow people to play the race card against him, right? 
And and Clinton's a really fascinating figure in this way because he is he is such a signal manager. You know, Toni Morrison calls him the first black president, right? Because he's he seems to be somebody who has a kind of the capacity to have certain kinds of relationships with black people. He had a single mother, a kind of a warmth and and connectedness that um, that sort of makes him different somehow from like other white presidents. But at the at the same time, Clinton is actually making sure to move the Democratic Party into an orbit, both on a policy trajectory and on a, um, a cultural trajectory that is aligned with the, the entire new right turn, right? And, and I mean, it gets called triangulation. Um, and, and in some sense, I think the the conflict around political correctness really erupts around that. And it erupts around trying to interpret and make sense of that. How much traction are kind of, um, are, are left progressives and feminists and anti-racists getting in this moment against a kind of, um, a, a kind of a new, in some ways, even stronger consensus around colorblindness, around neoliberal austerity, around the carceral state, around ending welfare as we know it, right? Those sort of four major planks and, and also immigration enforcement, as you've written about, Dan. The, the 90s is a, is a tremendously reactionary period in that sense, right? But it's a reactionary period that's wrapped in a kind of progressive patina or something, you know? And, and you know, just as, as Thatcher said, her greatest creation was Blair, we might say that, you know, Clinton was the great creation of, uh, or the great victory of Reaganism. And it's really striking to go back to that moment and to, and to realize just how much the Democratic Party is attempting to uh, frame its kind of claim to hegemony by reducing the salience of race, which is almost the opposite of now. Or the opposite of the charge, at least, that's made now. Though you could say in some ways Biden is very similar in some respects, right? But the, the argument, people wouldn't say the Democratic Party is reducing the salience of race right now. It would be more, uh, it's, it's, we'll get into that, I expect, later. But it's clearly what's happening in the 1990s. But then all these conflicts are erupting, Right. All these conflicts are erupting. And, and, and that's the moment in which I think of as kind of the, the, the current conflicts really begin for us. That we are we, we start to have those conflicts around what Arthur Schlesinger Jr. calls the disuniting of America. And David Hollinger calls the kind of the promise of a post-ethnic America. You know, and Alan Bloom, you know, decries as the closing of the American mind. And of course, m- much of this opens up inside the university. And the progressive currents that are emerging there are making the right very, very anxious, right? And they're starting to sort of develop a reaction to it that aligns with their reaction to losing some power under Clintonism. And then the center is sort of beginning to worry, again, as I said earlier, is this going to amount to a kind of overreach? You know, are we going to go too far with this stuff? But meanwhile, the policy conversation is just running by all of us to the right, at that moment, you know, so I also want to kind of separate out these things because I think that the culture war conversation has always been to some degree about mystifying the kind of the political policy stakes for actual people where they live and how they live. Right. And that is maybe just too crude for my co-panelists as a kind of, you know, kind of ideology critique uh, sort of approach to it. But um, but I think that, that that's also part of what we want to unpack here in this conversation. 
Definitely. And I think looking at the 90s, the relationship between the culture war conversation and, you know, the the hard policy conversation or, or, or just hard policies on things like the war on crime and welfare reform, putting those two things next to each other and looking at them at the same time is really illuminating because it wasn't just that the New Democrats and Clinton were taking this neoliberal right turn, but the right turn itself was really telegraphed as killing sacred liberal or progressive cows, you know, as like as this performative disregard for liberal pieties. As Moira mentioned, the first big article about PC was a 1990 New York Times piece by Richard Bernstein. And then another big one was a cover story by none other than Dinesh D'Souza in The Atlantic. And there was this attraction to transgressiveness amongst liberal centrist types from the New Republic publishing excerpts of the bell curve to Alien Nation, this just viciously anti-immigrant book, getting rave reviews in The Atlantic and in The New York Times from Richard Bernstein, actually, of all people. What was the relationship between this kind of rhetorical transgression that was both an anti-PC discourse and in The New Republic publishing an excerpt from The Bell Curve? What was the relationship between that and this sort of policy transgression against what was seen as the New Deal and Great Society tradition with welfare reform and the war on crime and the war on immigrants. How how did those two, two things fit together? I agree generally that with, with what Nikhil said, that shifting things onto the culture war, it's an ideological mystification that serves a pretty obvious function. I don't think it's at all too crude to say that. I think that's just true. But I think there's some kind of relationship between the a, appeal of performative transgressiveness to the New Democrats and all of their media outlets in the 90s. Patrick? Yeah, I think, actually, I totally agree with both Nikhil and Moira on this. And I, I think, uh, Dan, you're, you're pointing to something really, really complicated. And we're getting these reiterations of these configurations of like, what can be spoken and how baldly can it be spoken, the better to sort of like channel malice and grievance and, and also like provoke people in some way while also maintaining certain basic structures of, of, of you know, of racial capitalism, right, and, and austerity and whatnot. And I think there's something that's so striking, and I'm, I'm thinking about this in light of the genealogy that you've both laid out, about the, the trajectory of, like, the work that's done by, like, the idea of cancel culture as a term, in, in, analogous to the way, you know, woke, which I think is a very bald, and, and like, that's already passed. You can hear, you know, you can hear that, well, oftentimes people say that word, they just want to say a slur, like, you can hear it. But 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 also to um, PC or even something like critical race theory, right? Where it's like it's a term that is that's like ethically present or ethically present, I guess, within a community, right? A, a discursive community of, of, of activists. Maybe it's tongue in cheek. Maybe it's a critical term within a scholarly community, etc. It's like wrenched from that and then used as a, a designator for that community, while also functioning as a way for the person who is using it to sort of credentialize themselves, right? As someone who's like, here's the latest thing that's happening with those people, right? Like it's sort of like, much in the same way as a lot of like op-eds are reducible to like, I've got my nose to the ground and I can tell you to the ground. I don't know. I I can tell you what, like, here's how the campus teens are going wild in the latest way, right? Here's, and so the person who deploys this is able to parlay this term to somehow signal that they're, in the know, and of course they very rarely are, like half the people, these people don't actually read critical race theory, like et cetera, right? But it, it instead functions as a kind of capacious signifier for 
what you know, and always there are a whole series of other patchouli smelling, like hippie dressing, whatever. Right? It's a whole series. Essentially, it's just those people, and it allows a person to deploy this, oftentimes like with a a considerable degree of like um, it can be lucrative, but also like it seems like a there's something very interesting about how it offers as a touchstone for the perennial anxieties of the political economy. This sort of like appeal to relevance. Right. Where it's like, I'm relevant insofar as I can tell you what critical race theory is or like this, this, these latest grievances that you have against young people. Right. Or people of color. Let's give you something to to hang that on. And that is the specter of critical race theory. It's the woke brigades. It's something right. And, And that like simultaneously exoticizes it as something new, but also gives the person who's consuming it the sense of, well, I'm, I'm relevant too. like, I I understand what they're all about. Right. And, And there's something about that. That's so, I don't even know what the word for it is, but it's like, we can all stay relevant in some way, but relevance really is just the latest churn of that sort of culture war theatrics epiphenomenal to this continuing structure of, of awfulness. Right. And if you probe the fantasy, you ask these people, well, what is what, what are you actually afraid of by getting canceled? What actually is the fear? Or, or if you oppose that to what that actual reality is, this carceral reality that we're all talking about, or like the, these questions of like violence, like are it's not like are they afraid that they're gonna get pulled over by the cancel culture cop and then shot? Right? Are they afraid that they're gonna catch the cancel culture plague and then die and be unmourned and have a distance funeral? Right? Like, no, it's it's a purely all it is is a fear, you know, of maybe my kids aren't going to like me as much anymore. Or I'm going to say something and people who work on are going to hate me or something, right? It, it's, it, it's, it's, which is a perennial fear, much as those systems of human disposability are quite perennial beneath it, right? It's just a different way of configuring it. The point on credentialing before we move on from the 90s, which I want to do in a second, is interesting because I, I think what the right was doing in the 1990s with anti-PC was one thing. And what Bill Clinton was doing was precisely sort of credentialing as independent of the left when he was doing something like welfare reform, this performative transgression against liberal great society norms. And the New Republic was doing the same thing when they were publishing the bell curve. Like, oh, there's certain rules that say you're not supposed to talk about race science, and but we're serious and we're not afraid of offending people to get to the truth. And so that's what it's doing indexically in both cases is separating whether the New Republic or Bill Clinton from the left and marking the publication or the president as a different sort of more serious and thus more relevant liberal, relevant to, I guess, the post-Reagan, post-Reagan America. Yeah, well, it certainly is a way of marking oneself as a free thinker. I feel like as a sort of media and technology historian, I also can't help but think about this as this era of like deregulation of media industries too, right? It's like 1987, the FCC abolishes the fairness doctrine. You get Rush Limbaugh, you get like narrow casting instead of broadcasting and television, you get the multiplication of media channels. And of course, um, the web, right? <laughs> like starting in, you know, 1993. And I, it's always been a kind of fascinating question to me. And I genuinely actually don't know the answer to this question. This really puzzles me, but it's like, how is it that it became a widely shared form of common sense that nobody can say what they think and everyone has to be worried um, about the possibility of shame? I don't think Patrick used the word shame exactly, but I think about shame a lot in these contexts because it's, you know, I think often what's at stake is a kind of fear of being shamed and um, the promise of shamelessness is part of the appeal of anti-PC 
rhetoric. But how is it that at this moment where literally it became possible for anyone, for unprecedented numbers of people to broadcast whatever they thought over the internet, that it became a form of common sense that nobody can say what they think? Um, and I think that I'm... I'm very interested in this question, too, of how, and I'd never thought about it as credentialing. It's really inter an interesting idea, um, how uh, positing that these mainstream hegemonic broadcasting era liberal centrist institutions, you know, the Cold War consensus institutions, those were silencing something. And now in this new era, I, whoever I, the non-PC, you know, non-sheep person am, can now freely and boldly speak my mind, what role that plays in sort of building these new new kinds of publics and audiences and understandings of community in this in this moment when when media are fragmenting and this kind of cold work liberal consensus has fully fragmented and then we're getting you know by ninety six you have the telecoms act and cda two thirty and the deregulation of the internet um that still shapes our our online culture wars in all in all kinds of ways. And so, yeah, I think that in addition to designating, because the thing that's interesting about calling someone PC doesn't just imply that they're incorrect about something. It implies that they're insincere or sort of in bad faith that even they don't really believe what they're saying. I think most of the time or that there's some kind of obvious reality that they're denying. I think that's part of why it's so useful to reactionaries as a rhetorical form. Um, but I think that I'm very interested in how that lets the speaker brand themselves as like a free thinker um, in this moment of nichification and deregulation, like how that serves to build new kinds of, of audiences and publics in this moment of deregulation. But and it really, because it really genuinely interests me. It's like, what are people talking about? It has never in history been easier for anyone to say whatever they think to lots of people. Doesn't mean anyone's going to listen, but the means are there. So... So yeah, anyway, something about branded, like new, the new realities of like more nicheified publics um, and how being anti-PC lets you brand yourself as not part of that establishment, but like a new kind of a free thinker and speaker seems really important to me in addition to the credentialing. Nikhil, final thoughts on the 90s? Yeah, I, I, I want to come back and connect with the technology conversation as we go forward. As a historian of the civil rights movement, I'm mostly kind of attuned to the way in which the 90s was a, a, a very successful subjugation of the liberatory currents that had come out of the civil rights movement. I mean, the, the term that really, that really resonates the most for me is colorblindness in the law. And colorblindness in the law, let's make no mistake, has had its greatest victories as late as 2013 in Shelby versus Holder. So this is a jurisprudential current that really goes from the 1980s all the way to the contemporary moment that really says equal protection means no use of race in the law. And scholars like Devin Carbato have described this as equal protection inversion. So equal, the equal protection clause that was written to protect black citizens who are made vulnerable to discrimination now becomes a mechanism to basically say you cannot protect people who might be vulnerable to discrimination because you'll be discriminating against somebody else. And so that is not complete but that is a trajectory that comes out of the 1990s. And I, I remember one of the, the classic cancellations of that moment was Lonnie Guineer, who Clinton nominated for assistant attorney general and who the Republicans branded as a quota queen. 
and were able to, and the quota queen was connected to the welfare queen and it was because Lonnie was black and because she was a sophisticated thinker about how you could uh, you could actually build in civil rights protections through actually uh, race neutral jurisprudence through things like ranked choice voting and other kinds of ways of weighting variables. I mean, she's very she was very sophisticated about this, and they just absolutely hammered her down, you know, and and made it impossible for Clinton to go there. Meanwhile, of course, you have you have ending welfare as we've talked about. You have mass incarceration really becoming doxa. You have the invention of categories like the underclass. I mean, like these kind of, like there's a new species of sort of underling who is kind of racialized, but you never actually are using, because you're colorblind, a kind of explicit, like racially stigmatizing language. You're bringing back racial science in this kind of asking questions sort of way. And I mean, it was really bad, you know, it was really bad. And those of us who were emerging then as scholars and trying to think of it, we really felt that we were the insurgents, you know, and that we were fighting against, you know, a kind of a new racism, a new racism that had really um, gained a lot of traction through the, the kind of combative neoliberalism of the Reagan era and now kind of entrenched in common sense, as, as, as Moira put it, by the way in which um, it became part of the, the Democratic Party's leadership in, in policy and politics. You know, I think that, that a lot of us started our, I mean, I started my intellectual kind of career then. I'm a little older than all of you. And, you know, we were, we were fighting, we were fighting a, a battle against that from a position not of strength. But we were beginning, I think, then to make the kind of arguments that would start to gain some traction. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. Moira, you, you write that a 2015 New York Magazine essay by Jonathan Chait, unsurprisingly, helped kick off this latest anti-PC moment. What, what did Chait write and why did the latest round of anti-PC emerge when it did after 2014? So I think, again, I have a tendency because I study histories of media and technology to probably be a bit too media and technology oriented. But it seems to me no accident um, that it's precisely following the birth of BLM or sort of this first wave of protest in 2014 and also following the rise of mobile social apps that make new kinds of both social movements and then critique uh, more visible to someone like Jonathan Chait, who seems to be like, (laughs) sometimes these guys, I'm like, they just sit there like name searching themselves on Twitter and waiting to get upset. But, um, but I think that it's no accident. I'm trying to remember because when I, in my PC article, I'm sure I have the figures, but it's, if you, if you do like large scale database um, searches on how much people are talking about political correctness, in American news media, there's that spike in the 90s that goes up and up and up. I'm always fascinated that it sort of tapers down a bit around 96, which I feel like would conform to the story Nikhil has been telling uh, about democratic signaling and sort of management and then completely disappears, disappears after 9-11. Uh, when- because whatever that common sense that was being consolidated by the new Democrats and Clinton was was consolidated effectively by that point. That's what I, I mean. I'm being a bit, I'm sure, uh, you know, a fastidious listener will point out to me that I'm wrong about some detail, but in the broad contours, if you go on ProQuest and like map how many times people are talking about PC, 
That's the line that follows in the 90s. And it kind of disappears, goes down from 9-11 till Obama picks up a little bit, but then shoots back up um, in, in 2014. And I do think it is a combination of these new social movements for racial justice and the way they manifest on new kinds of mobile social media in ways that make them visible to someone like Jonathan Chait uh, to them to then write about and the anxieties that these new kinds of networked media produce in a sort of commentariat class seems important. Patrick, why did this emerge and how, in what form did it emerge, this immediate predecessor to the cancel culture politics of right now, the post-2014 reemergence of anti-PC politics? You know, it's, it's funny as I think about this also, I, I'm now thinking about what I, I should have said vis-a-vis the 90s, right? And and, and building on, on, on what both Moyer and, and Nikhil have said, like there is something about this, the desire for a very natural desire, but also like the professionalized desire of commentators to periodize and to take things as being disjunctive. And now we're in a new era and we're in a new moment. And like this, this four years have changed and now everything is different, right? And, and the way that effaces certain bottom line continuities, right? And which which we could articulate very basically, racial injustice, right? Inequality. Like the, the, somehow though, that the, instead of simply saying, well, let's just call that the repressed, right? That's the thing that keeps on staying there. It's it's literal. It's literal repression and metaphorical repression. Like it's the thing that cannot be said, and and that when people say, or if, if they keep saying it, like for some reason that can't have purchase, or like that doesn't get traction in those for those who had the job of metabolizing common sense in that gatekeeping mode. And so what they instead do is they constantly repackage those eruptions of this thing that should be that we should constantly be talking about and thinking about in ways that are not confined to those sort of like blinders into, well, this is the latest craze. This is PC. This is so these are social justice warriors. And well, no, I mean, it's it's people who have largely many of the same concerns, right, with these structural problems that exist and, 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 and underwrite this sort of churn of false novelty. Right. And there's something about that continual recycling of the same basic structural problems of oppression into these terms, which are essentially present. This is the latest newfangled, unserious thing that appears to be, I think that's a play in the 90s. I think that's a play in 2014. Right. And I think there's something just to, to tie it into something that people were saying earlier about like the way in which the f- digital media, like this, this, this paradox of digital media, right, where there's so much niche production. Right. And these and uh, and the and, and this credentializing, you can make a living off it. Right. Like you use the word to, to both cons- con- present yourself as a credentialed expert and then also to consolidate your audience around the third parties who you are obliquely or more or less baldly referencing as being bad. But there's something about the fact that what social media or these these new discursive modes are held, what even Jonathan Chait does. Right. Like he's, fun- uh, he's a function. He's a fu- uh, there, many, there could be many different Jonathan Chaits, right? He's like a slime mold. You could have a lot of different people who basically have the same function. Is that they'll say these things again that are heinous and more or less baldly articulated. And then there will be people who will respond to them, whether in good faith, taking their argument on face value or simply being like, this is yet more painful bullshit that I have to be inflicted to. But somehow it's the fact that they that there is that re- reaction in the first place that somehow credentializes them yet further as that, well, they must have a point. And of course, when it comes to who they actually respond to, they very rarely respond to the actual scholars doing the critical race theory. Instead, they take exemplary examples, like that's to, to be redundant, of people being uniquely and justifiably also like hystericized in turn by the ongoing process of like laundering structural oppression to prove that actually, no, of course, these people are just silly. 
Of course, John, of course, cancel culture is an absurd, wrong thing. Look how upset people get when Jonathan Chait says heinous things about cancel culture, right? It's, 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 it's just the, the very flattening of, and, and like the coexistence of these silos. It happens alongside this fact where you, if you poke the, the other, someone's going to come up and it's going to confirm what you have to say about it. And that that's a really that's really twisted somehow. And I don't know how to deal with it. But yeah. So I want to pin down before we move on, just like what? Because like we think of it as such a right wing thing now, but going back in time, like six years or so, if I remember correctly, it was really Jonathan Chait and Mark Lilla type capital L liberals who really reintroduced this latest round of anti-PC discourse before it was picked up by the right. Why? You know, I'm, I'm sort of always relentlessly trying to build the timeline in my own mind. And, you know, I think something that both Patrick and, and Morris said really stuck out to me. What, one of the things Morris said is obviously Black Lives Matter and the kind of new viral intensities that come out of social movement organizing around police violence is a huge catalyst in our politics and something that is um, driving things forward in new ways and people are having to react to it. And obviously this is, this is a, big, a big question. And the other thing about that, of course, is it's not new. Because police violence, police murder of Black people in particular, this has produced riots and upheavals in American cities going back to the to 1919, or if not earlier. And I think of the time in the in the late 90s, just to go back for one minute there, you know, we were up in arms in New York City around the, the torture of Admiral Wima and the murder of Amadou Diallo by the police. Bruce Springsteen wrote a song called 41 Shots that made the cops really, really mad. They wanted to cancel Bruce Springsteen, you know, and the thing is, is like nobody had to cancel anyone because 9-11 canceled all of us and everything that we were trying to do changed then. We still have never been able to cancel the people that tortured people. Everything got put on the table in 9-11 that we were fighting against. It was back square one, racial profiling, torture, police abuse, uh, rampant militarism. And you couldn't, you couldn't do anything about it. You couldn't, there was no traction to be gained in that argument. Now it all broke apart because the war was such a disaster. And, you know, I know we can't now go back and have a full conversation about this. So I'm going to stop there because I realize there's a lot of history to fill in. But when Obama became president, right, and he became president with the idea that we were going to restore some kind of consensual governing purpose after the after the war, after the financial crisis, after the disputed election of 2000. And, and of course, the, the, the upsurge that emerged around Obama was basically trying to cancel Obama. I mean, I don't want to put everything into the frame of cancellation, but conservatives basically said, we are going to, we are not going to let him do anything. Jim DeMint went to the Heritage Foundation and said, you know, we're going to crush him. We're going to stop him from doing anything. This is when you really started to see some of this kind of this kind of crazy, really like overtly crude and violent kind of racist caricatures reemerging on the right. And of course, this is also when we began to see new traction develop around social movements on the left. You know, and of course, all of that goes back to the thing that we know it goes back to, which is the crisis of the neoliberal order. The, the collapse of economic fortunes for like the bottom half of the population, if not more than the bottom half of the population, a loss of faith in government broadly across the political spectrum. 
But don't forget what Trump was trying to do throughout the entire period of the Obama administration. He was trying to say that the president was a fraudulent citizen. And that was like widely entertained by right-wing media. It gave Breitbart its start. Um, it really became a huge thing. And of course, the other thing that then erupted on Obama's watch when they couldn't effectively cancel him because he won re-election in 2012 was Black Lives Matter. Because police violence was still rampant, it was still a, a problem, and the people of Ferguson basically said, we don't accept this anymore. And they revolted at a citywide scale, something that we hadn't seen in a long time. You know, and I think that these uh, phenomena are still so present and so alive for us that we are trying to come to terms with them and figure out what they mean. But I think that the momentum and the trajectory coming out of 2014 is still present. Trump won in 2016, of course, which was a shock to everyone. But Trump's victory actually did not stop that momentum. If anything, it accelerated it. Because now liberals who are maybe fence sitters uh, on a lot of these issues were like, wait a minute. We have a problem in this country with like rampant racism. This is no longer like couched in the niceties of colorblindness. This is naked police violence and the president talking, the president talking the language of white supremacy. Like, so like, what is this moment? And I think that's what we've been sorting out ever since. And I think it really made some of the, you know, I don't have quite the, the timeline quite correct, but it made the sort of the Jonathan Chates and the Mark Lillas and the people like that, the centrists, really, really nervous, right? And they're nervous for a couple of reasons. One is they think, they think the right's stronger than it is. Um, and that the right is going to just, if the left overreaches, the right's going to run away with things again. So they're going back to that 90s moment and thinking about how uh, that was where they were formed. That's where Mark Lilla was formed, you know, as, as an intellectual. It's like identity politics is going to like, is, go is going to tear us apart. Well, the opposite happened. The opposite happened. The George Floyd rebellion, you could argue, actually uh, helped elect Biden, like bizarrely counterintuitively how do you how do you make sense of this of course it's more complicated than that but you but you know what i'm saying right um and and i think um the 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 balance of forces and the context is different now right so 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 the conversation that we have now about what is going on in this sort of domain that's called cancel culture with conservatives now very much on the defensive in the ways in which they're using it, and centrist liberals worrying again about left leftist overreach, but also I think many of the centrist liberals trying to decide themselves where their bread is going to be best buttered. I think the other two things I wanted to throw into the mix that looking back at this article reminded me of is the incident at Shadi Abdo and sort of just be Shadi and this this way in which um, a certain kind of pro-Iraq war centrist liberal fashioned being pro-free speech, anti-cancellation or political correct correctness in relation to ideas about ra radical Islam, you know, even in the 2010s, that that was sort of a really important point of contrast or sort of specter or other that I feel perhaps I'm forgetting something, but maybe has fallen, maybe now it is more focused on the 
uprisings in the United States and racial justice. But I think, you know, all these wannabe George Orwells who had their Iraq war thing, sort of that the, the Je suis Charlie moment was like very important. And then the other thing that was crossing my mind, too, was the sort of first iteration of, you know, I think about how the campus sex debates should relate to then Me Too, which now is more recent for us. But I think it's in 2011 when Obama, you know, in the Department of Education sends around this letter about how colleges have to be more careful about preventing sexual assault. And that study, I think, comes out in 2014 that has that one in four figure. Fascinatingly and depressingly to me, the first large scale study of campus sexual assault conducted by Ms. Magazine and published in the 80s finds basically the same exact figure. So I'm always fascinated by what this rhetoric of new discovery around that figure is doing through the decades. But anyway, the Jonathan Chait article also talks about trigger, talks about Charlie Hebdo and talks about trigger warnings and the sort of campus sex panic. And I just wanted to bring that up because it seems to me that the uprisings for racial justice are most important. I would say like if I had to point to one reason everyone's talking about it again in 2014, that it is BLM, but that there is also um, both then and, you know, with the way Me Too precedes the, the current cancel culture moment, a kind of liberal panic um, about sexuality. That's, that's very interesting to me. And, and just the last thing to say about that is that one thing that, that really becomes salient um, when people are using the term cultural Marxism, maybe more than political correctness, but I think maybe a theme of many of these debates is that there's this suggestion often that the person, you know, the sanctimonious mob who is canceling the sort of imagined other is is politicizing something that shouldn't be political. Um, and I think that, and, you know, I feel like there were so many versions of this around me too, where, you know, I think it was the Aziz Ansari incident that <laughs> inspired Caitlin Flanagan to write her piece, but where it's like, you know, someone being clumsy, clumsy at a hookup. It's not rape, you know, it's it's just clumsiness or something. But this idea that there's, that certain um, mainstream gatekeepers get to posit themselves as reasonable and the guardians of common sense against this like excessive politicization of everyday life and intimate life seems like an important thing. So I just wanted to flag that this discourse about trigger warnings um, and microaggressions is another word that feels important around 2014 then to precedes um, or is in the mix with this sort of rise of the PC discourse again in the mid 2010s also related to social media, I think, but I'll cut myself off there. That's fascinating. There's a lot there. And one piece that I never I never thought of was that these a lot of these are pro-Iraq war liberals who bought into Bush's freedom agenda to quite disastrous ends. And then there's this opportunity for them to overwrite that history and once again recast themselves as heroes boldly going against the left, standing up for freedom. Uh, Patrick? Yeah, I'm really struck by, I'm thinking about this these sort of trying to tie together some of these different spaces where we're describing these dynamics and also the through lines, which are very much about rewriting or like effacing collective history, but also one's own personal history of advocacy or one's own personal history of human relationships and how that participates in this broader I'm trying to describe this process on a, on a, on a generic, a broad enough level, like sublation versus like cancel culture is just the latest iteration of this broader process of sublation, right? But like what I'm thinking about here, though, more is like how in each of these spaces, and I think it's striking that we're thinking about the university, 
right? Classrooms or pundits who have like pundit, pundit tenure, right? Or, um, or frat houses or something, right? We're dealing with spaces where, or, or hell, like immigrant communities in, in Paris, right? Muslim immigrants in, in, in the former like imperial metropole. We're dealing with places where there are stark and undeniable differentials of power. The power of a teach a professor over their students is real. The or there's an asymmetry there, and there's an asymmetry as well between the person who has a platform and a weekly column and an audience of millions and random people getting upset in their mentions. And there's a and there's similar dynamics of power that are there, right? And I think what's very striking about and oftentimes it's male. It's a male power that exalts in dominance or that exalts in a type of impunity or it's certainly validated as being impuni- as having very little uh, to worry about in the way of consequences. But there's something striking about how that position of power is retained, even as it's constantly articulating itself as being under threat. Speaking about people like Lilla, I'm speaking about Shade, I'm speaking about fucking David Thrum. From, I'm guessing all these people who are in positions of like essentially complete insulation and at apexes of stark differentials of power, somehow sustaining that position and even luxuriating in it by invoking the specter of people simply being upset at what they say rather than even what they do or have done. Like those things are forgotten. Hell, we're relitigating the Iraq war now in this completely histrionic mode, right? Like what people pretended to have advocated at some point, right? But there's something about that that it's like, I'm trying to think like like a primal scene for the cancel culture anxiety, right? Or like, again, what people are so afraid of when they talk about their fears of being canceled. And I say this as someone in in a space here in rural Pennsylvania, like on these like Facebook groups for local churches, community groups, like there are a lot of people who don't like, they don't know who Jonathan Shade is. They don't read Mark Willow or any of this shit, but they're really worried about being canceled. And it's unclear like what the fuck that actually means. And it really seems to take the basic form of being like, I'm going to say, I'm going to be just speaking my truth. Right. I'll be speaking my mind. I'll be doing I'll just be being me in some unchecked way. And it's going to provoke a response from someone that is inappropriate, excessive. They're the hysteric. It's bad. And I will have to feel bad about it. And there's something about that basic thing, like the basic thing that's being preserved there is like, no, no, it's my job. It's my role to say things that hurt people. And it's their role to fucking sit there and take it. It's about preserving a certain type of dynamic of pleasure and disregard as to the pain of others, but that also then when people's pain becomes expressed more undeniably, takes that as proof that actually you're the person who's the most vulnerable and the most in pain. And I think there's something going on about the reconfiguration of what is sayable post-Trump and also the undeniable reality of like physical violence in the streets by agents of the state, like talk about a really stark differential that is really attenuating. And, and I, I use this word deliberately, like hystericizing and making even more absurd the ways in which it's the job of so many of these gatekeepers, but also of like mainstream culture in general to essentially sublimate violence in the real into just like symbolic bullshit. Yeah, I want to get into in a minute this question of why does it resonate so powerfully, because it's not at all clear to me, but I think maybe a, something we should address before that is why Trump and his transgressiveness and his you know, explicit denunciation of political correctness all the time, as you've written about Moira, his campaign was all about anti-PC in particular and rhetorical transgression in general. He constantly asserted that 
politically correct people didn't want him to talk about immigrant crime or the danger posed by Muslims. He invoked his opposition to political correctness when Megyn Kelly in that debate asked him about him calling uh, women fat pigs and disgusting animals. And there was this really critical dynamic to the whole 2016 campaign where every latest outrage was supposed to be the end of the Trump campaign. But instead, every single outrage only made him stronger. Trump telling it like it is, despite political correctness, is maybe like on the most basic level what made him so popular. So why why at that moment was transgression of speech norms such a winning issue for Trump? Obviously, people wanted to hear the racism with a bullhorn rather than a dog whistle. But I'm not convinced that's all that was going on there. Why the appeal? The sovereign is he who decides the exception to the cancel culture, basically, right? I mean, I mean, he he's like he's like the one thing that can't be canceled and the one thing that can say anything, right? And there's something about that, you know, the way in which Trump absorbed all of those those sort of energies and those kinds of controversies and just kind of like took it into himself and made himself stronger, you know, in some kind of bizarre way. Uh, anyway, that was that was more of a joke than a comment. No, I think you're right, though. It's also funny. Though. But I think there is, and again, it's hard to be sort of precise about this analytically, but I think of, like, all my Trumpist relatives on Staten Island and in Jersey, um, and I think he offered... I think that there's just like the centrality of shame in contemporary American life and like a feeling of failure and personal failure in a way that a certain neoliberal narrative tells individuals that history doesn't explain anything and these these systems don't explain anything. And if you failed, it's because you failed. That there is something that there's just a deep sense of shame in contemporary American life that Trump offered people freedom from. Um, and I think, you know, thinking about political correctness, I've often just thought like, well, what if we just called it politeness? Like calling people like what they would prefer to be called. And I'm interested in the role of segregation too. And it's just like people who don't actually know anybody who comes from certain other categories, but only see them on television. And it's just like mad at this idea that now their asshole granddaughter who went to college is going to like tell them that they shouldn't be talking that way. You know? So anyway, I think that sometimes I'm like, what if we just called it being polite and, and, you know, and, and what if maybe it's a symptom of the fact that like America is more and more segregated in all these ways and people just don't interact with. But I think, I think there's something about it. And, you know, maybe it's like the recession or the two recessions. I sometimes think about how different people in my life talk about the two recessions instead of the one recession. Um, but in the in the 2010s, to have someone come along and, of course, make these classically fascist plays in certain respects, you know, about the other pe- the other people who are responsible for for your condition and are trying to silence you and and controlling controlling the world. That's one thing. But I do think there was something about Trump's just sort of like disgustingness and shamelessness that made people feel liberated. And it's always struck me on the speech issue that it's like, there's something so intimate about it. It's like, oh, I'm, I can't even say the things I want to say. I think about this around the hysteria around trans kids in bathrooms too, or whatever, where it's like, it's like, oh, I'm going to have to pee next to someone. <laughs> that there's something about it um, that part of its winningness had to do with 
what it speaks to, I think, is a sense of of shame that is produced by rampant sort of systemic inequality and the absence of better stories to tell people um, about why they why they are experiencing it or how they're experiencing it. Um, and I think, yeah, to have someone come along and do the classic othering thing that it's like, well, it's because of these other people that you feel this way um, is in the one sense, as Patrick has been pointing out, you know, continuous, very long histories of racism and anti-Semitism and misogyny and all kinds of things. But But I do think we can't discount the fact that it's, you know, it's not nothing that that shame doesn't come from nowhere. You know, it's not totally, or that sense of disempowerment isn't hallucinatory uh, on the part of people who feel it. So, and I think that it was so winning because it's like to cast it, it's very gendered too, very school marmish, the cancel stuff, but uh, to cast it as like, your life is is crappy because because you're I don't know your factory closed or your job at the MBTA that used to have you don't have anymore, um, and and now also these you know the sort of new class people in your life are going to shame you about how you should be talking. I mean I think that that's I think it speaks to a sense of shame and a desire to not feel that shame and something about Trump and his total shamelessness um, was really spoke to something real uh, as, of course, as much as I do not endorse it in any way. I'm like, now I'll get canceled, but I'll be on maternity leave, so I won't even notice. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I th- anyway, I think that there is- You deserve, some, there is tw- you deserve 12 weeks of paid cancellation. <laughs> it's, it, it's pretty interesting though, because because Trump, Trump is shameless. I totally agree with that. And Biden is kind of oblivious. It's sort of like not having sensitivity to this is actually something of a political advantage in this moment in a certain kind of way. And I think it is really true. The word that I've used, you know, in other contexts is disposability. You know, people, people feel very disposable. And there's a lot of rage and a lot of sensitivity that is, and this is where I think the cancel culture critics really get it wrong. Like, it's not about saying there isn't such a thing. You know, but it has all of these cross currents that aren't really um, that aren't really uh, confined to one part of the political spectrum. There's a really profound way in which everyone wants to be a moral protagonist, you know, but everybody actually feels that they're quite easily disposed of. And, and nobody feels that anybody has any grace, you know, so it's like you, you, you can't sort of say like, and, and this is where I, I want to get in maybe to, to the, the criticism to some degree, because the history te- tells us something, and I think the history is really important. But we are dealing with something that we also experience, you know, which is kind of like a, a kind of censoriousness and a kind of, a kind of awareness that if you, if you do appear to be, you know, whatever maladroit or, 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 or insensitive, or even, even make a, make an error, or maybe even act out of, say, anger or rage and say something you don't mean to, that there's actually no margin. There's no grace. There's no, there's no ability to kind of, to kind of correct or revise. It's very, very hard for some people to come back from things, especially if they're sort of situated as, as kind of relatively weak players. I mean, stronger players can withstand it. I mean, Cuomo's still standing, you know, just like Trump was. And, and plenty of people are still standing. Um, but plenty of people just got pushed aside, you know, because, um, because they couldn't withstand that kind, of, um, that kind of shaming attack 
And, you know, I, I do think this is something that we, we absolutely have to take seriously and figure out how to deal with in a better way. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Routledge, which has loads of great titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How China Escaped Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate by Isabella Weber. China has become deeply integrated into the world economy, but the country's swift ascent in recent decades was never a foregone conclusion. Reformers after Mao's death in 1976 agreed that it was necessary for China to move towards marketization, but struggled over the right approach. Isabella Weber's new book uncovers the fierce reform debate that shaped China's path, offering a novel perspective on the origins of China's distinctive economic model. How China Escaped Shock Therapy by Isabella Weber, coming soon from Routledge, and an interview coming soon on The Dig. This is an important, important question, Patrick. We've discussed how right-wing and capital L liberals who endlessly rant about cancel culture are full of shit, and there's all sorts of obvious ideological mystification going on there. But is there, as Nikhil is pointing out, still a there there, something about aspects of dominant liberal and left discourse, particularly online and super particularly on Twitter, that are troubling and worth reflecting upon? I'm going to try, I'm going to build to answering that by like, Thinking through the, the things that you all have said that are just so so astute and, and, and making my brain really run quickly. But like, there's something, I feel like it is indeed, abs- I, I feel like everyone is on edge, right? On edge in the sense of being like hypervigilant, but also on the edge of like the edge of, you know, that bankruptcy that you fall into if you have a single medical accident, right? Or, or like losing your home or on the, like looking at the cop the wrong way when they pull you over. Like there is this sense of like a total zero sum kind of like, Precarity almost isn't even quite the right word for it because it's affective. And I guess that's what I'm trying to get at, where it's it's like I feel like, you know, like I'm not a finance guy, but it's my understanding that the stock market and the real economy have completely severed from one another. Right. And I, I, part of me also feels like the uh, like the political economy and like the libidinal economy, by which I mean, like this reservoir of fantasies, fears, transformed affects and stuff have all they're in a kind of weird new sort of relationship right particularly now that the trump who i agree is like his job as a sovereign was to be uncancelable actually did get deplatformed in the end which is kind of a weird sort of like thing so we're in a very sort of like psychotic moment we're trying to figure out the fuck like what actually are consequences at this point but i do think like that if we're going to take this idea of like everyone again being on edge or, or there being this kind of like this real anxiety and fear and malice, right? And also against the background of the fact that we're all about, you know, like humanity itself may soon get fucking canceled by climate change and methane burst. Like who the hell knows, right? The fish are going to get canceled in a couple of decades and we're fucked, right? Like there's no, like that's all looming over this. And there's some way in which like death is the great canceler looms over us all and also over these small things, dude. I don't want to psychologize Jonathan Chate or like these people I know, the retirees, like jet ski owners on Twitter or Facebook. But like part of what they're a little bit worried about is they're like, man, I'm going to be less and less relevant over dinner. And also eventually I'm going to die, right? Like there is this thing, at least I can score a few points about, about I can make people squirm by talking about cancel culture, much in the same way as like there is a distinct death drive vibe to like all these Trump rallies where it's like, well, you know, 
at least we can cause other people some pain for a little bit. And that's, we can be a little bit alive vicariously for that. But like, if we are going to take that type of like miasma that we're all swimming in seriously, I do think that does implicate a lot of people who aren't, it's not just on the right. It's not just on the center. I think, you know, the people in the center are more floridly, they have their own incoherences vis-a-vis how they relate to power, right? This kind of self-castrating, disavowing, norming bullshit. Uh, and I think the people on the right are God even knows what's going on, right? But like, be- it's not just the circuit I'm saying though between Donald Trump as the transgressive patriarchal ghoul and Joe Biden as like the ghoul who, will, who apparently like one of the main selling points is that he's he's good at mourning people. That was all that we elected the president. Who's I, I, like I understand like that's we do need to do mourning, and I, God knows what's going to happen to our like our collective psyche a decade or two from now after there hasn't been this mourning. Like history indicates that doesn't that goes like. Or other territory. Very societies that don't mourn mass deaths generally go bad directions, right? But like, apart from that, I do think that there is, on like the left, the extent to which that's a thing you can talk about. I do think like there is some of those same vibes. Let's talk about it in terms of vibes, like these same anxieties, these same enactments, these same acting outs, these same like looking for a sort of libidinal quick satisfaction, like a dopamine hit, or some sort of sense of short-term vindication that will palliate those other pains. It's there, and I mean, it's there. In, in the mode of contradictions that you're, they're also present otherwise in other spaces. But one way to think about this, I think, is to know that you're like getting into a space where people's psyches and are inter- libidinal in the individual, the political economies are interfacing, the individual anxieties are interfacing with social insecurities, is when you start having these weird coexistence of opposites in, in fears, right? The idea that woke teens are completely useless and they won't do anything, but also they're going to destroy the country. Right. Uh, or yeah, you can do this for any, like this is a classic feature of most racist thinking too, right? The idea that like, how, how can the Jews simultaneously run in banks and also be Marxists who want to destroy currency, right? Like, Or all sorts of people both stealing your jobs and so lazy that they're on welfare all the time. It's a- exactly. <laughs> it, it, it's just, and the thing is like, these are not logical propositions. They, they, they work. It, it's not, we're not in the realm of P, not Q, whatever. We're in the realm of giving you an emotion, some sort of narrative that, that validates an emotion that you're having in the moment. Right. Or an emotion that you have all the time that you can't name. But but I do think just to think about some of these contradictions like that I see. Right. Where it's like celebrating when someone loses their job for act for fucking up in public or being an asshole. And don't get me wrong. I a lot of people should not be in their jobs. Really? Like, I don't never mind the fact that half the people who like the, the, when prominent people who do get fired, they just go start a sub stack or they turn out fine. Right. But there there is some point at which it's like I would think that people who have leftist commitments would be like, well, well, how do I say this? I, I want to be very specific and not get canceled. But there is a point at which celebrating when someone loses their job in this economy means they're exposed to types of precarity, for everything from healthcare to childcare to God knows what. What, what. what I'm saying here is that I feel like we should know better. There's a contradiction at play being the, well, like, let's celebrate once this person is is exiled. Like, let, let them come to nothing and be destroyed. That sits uneasily with a commitment to having universal uplift and a basic social safety net for everyone. Much in the same way, and this is perhaps more of a liberal thing, but I've seen this in leftists too, being like, finally, well, here's a terrible thing that's happened. Let's get the FBI to investigate it. We need to see these fuckers perp walked. And it's like, no, just 20 minutes ago, you were saying that the, the police were fascist pigs, but now they're going to do like, again, it, it's not, it's not about thinking a there is a natural human impulse to see other people suffer, right? And there's a pleasure in that. And part, maybe we can map on our political alignment and disavow- how, how honest people are about disavowing it or transforming it. But I do think that sometimes there are features, like to the extent to which we can talk about cancel culture naming something that has some degree of existence in the world, that does map on to 
the ways in which we have collectively, regardless of our ideological dispositions, are participating in this kind of miasma of precarity. And we want to have exemplary moments where other people can experience it more, or we have some sort of, ex like, against the backdrop of elite impunity, there is at least some specimen example of someone getting what they seem to deserve because we get nothing. A cruel pleasure in seeing your enemies suffer because that's maybe the most people think they can expect, even if they don't quite put it to themselves like that. And Nikhil, you, you recently said in an interview with The Drift, quote, in these large scale ways, we've become almost dulled and fatalistic in the sense that we expect decline. We expect a future that is worse than our present. Meanwhile, we've become more and more sensitized to the microscopic and frankly minor forms of abuse that are given watchful attention. Yeah, I mean, I I was worried about saying that and having it appear in print, lest somebody think I um saying their abuse that they experience is minor, which I'm not. What I'm trying to say is something along the lines that I think more and Pat have both been saying. Now I'm gonna like just shift my words onto them. That's really not fair. Let me, let me, let me own it. And, and say, yeah, I think this goes back to kind of grace and it goes back to, um, I mean, I'm, I don't know why I'm using this religious language. I'm not particularly religious, but I, but I think that um, the, the desire to recirculate harm, to use claims about being harmed to harm others, to use sometimes minor harms that you've experienced to make someone else suffer a major harm, like a job loss, for example, and to, to kind of also sometimes, I think, draw on the macro harms that are, are part of like the subjugation of entire populations, say, under the boot of the police, um, and to make them equivalent with somebody saying a racial slur in a classroom, you know, and kind of try to draw like various kinds of equivalences to kind of magnify what is essentially a, a minor harm with, with, a, with a genuinely major harm in order to kind of be able to make a certain kind of claim against your opponent. I think that's happening all the time now. And I think that's happening in ways that are, are not only very, very hard to adjudicate um, in the moment, uh, but they also really are about uh, not uh, reducing harm, but, but, but recirculating harm. So they, they really are, uh, to go back to kind of what we've been talking about, I think, throughout this whole, whole conversation, you know, if we think about the long neoliberal era, neoliberal subjectification and neoliberal austerity and neoliberal carcerality, right, we're still in that there may be signs of it breaking. We thought it would break more after 2008. Maybe the break seems more, more clear now in terms of the possibilities and the trajectories. And this does encompass the left very much, um, where the, the way of imagining justice is by a race to the bottom. It's basically by saying, I was harmed, you should be harmed. Um, or it's, it's by saying, they, they didn't, the police didn't kill that guy only because he was white, you know? And whenever somebody says that, and I've had people say this to me many, many times, I'm just like, wait a minute. Like, first of all, the police kill a lot of white people and people don't pay much attention to it. And somehow to talk about that is like strange for people who are worried about police violence. This should be like a big part of what we talk about, right? If we care about police violence. Let's just put that to the side. But then the next step you know, the police would have killed him if he hadn't been black, if he had, if, if, if he had been black, you know, but he wasn't. So they didn't kill him as if killing him would somehow be like a mark of fairness in that moment. 
you know, and it's like people don't even think about what they're saying, but the the imaginary that sort of encompasses that kind of statement is a, is a deeply harshly punitive one, you know, and that's kind of what I mean by the recirculation of harm, and that's also what I mean by you know, kind of the lowering of thresholds of disposability. So that is a general problem, I think, for us. Um, and what the left should be doing is raising the thresholds of disposability along every aspect of our life and our lived in common. And I think that's what we're definitely trying to do with Medicare for all, which we won't get, but we'll, we may get closer to it with uh, renewed social welfare spending, with taking away money from the police and giving it to, you know, mental health providers and uh, affordable housing providers and all kinds of other things that we need to sort of reduce the social decay of our cities. I mean, the, these are things that are actually genuinely part of the left program now that are gaining traction. And I'm, I couldn't be more happy and excited about it. And I wish it was all we had to talk about. But I think we, 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 we need to like stay on point with that, you know, and, 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 and keep pushing it forward. And of course, the cancel culture conversation is designed to derail this. It is designed to derail all of these other things. And there are many different people who have different investments in derailing it. But to the extent to which people on the left get drawn into the race to the bottom, you know, we are not helping our cause. Moira? It's funny. In another part of my brain, I've been writing a little something on on the authoritarian personality of the Frankfurt School. But I've been thinking of this like classic and I do think some of it still obtains the sort of like sadistic, the sadomasochistic psychodynamics of fascism, right? Where it's like, well, you sadistically identify with the great leader and sort of as a way of coping with your own sense of vulnerability. But I And then I had this dark thought where I'm like, is the fear of the ordinary person at getting canceled, um, you know, of my grandpa RIP so I can talk about him getting canceled? I don't think he would be listening to the dig <laughs> anyway. Um is that actually like a fantasy of being worth canceling in some messed up way? Like, is it, is it, is it this kind of um, fantasy? But I love, I mean, I love this line. Maybe it's just because those same, that same family raised me Catholic, but, uh, but I love this language of grace, Nikhil, and sort of to think that, yeah, I don't know. It seems like the sadism, it seems important to be on the watch for that sadism and that it's not a good or desirable political emotion at the same time that it's hard it's hard to know what justice is it's hard to know I mean because it's I remember one of the things I've written it's probably the only thing I ever worked on for a long time and I never published because <laughs> uh, I thought not just that I might got canceled but maybe it wasn't fair or wasn't right um was thinking through some of the campus sexual assault stuff and teaching creative writing in grad school and sort of being like immersed in those kinds of stories from people and thinking about the work it was doing in the university to have these low-paid grad students teaching kids to craft their little essays of, of overcoming. But anyway, I remember sharing it with someone whose opinion I respected, uh, who was like, but look, I don't want to be told I have to be, I have to wait for the whole, like... You know, I don't want to have to wait to undo racial capitalism to, like, not have to live near the guy who raped me in this dorm or whatever. So it's hard. Um, but anyway, I like this language of grace. Um, and I think it's a good reminder and exhortation not to be satisfied by by sadism, which circulates all too easily. And we still haven't talked about surveillance and the fact that we're all so afraid of being shamed and yet voluntarily <laughs> putting our whole lives in display. Um, and also the fact that the, you know, the tech companies never get canceled. Like, it's interesting where these things don't happen effectively. 
sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, well, the media isn't powerful anymore anyway. So uh, we can get rid of people there. But anyway, I was just vibing on what Nikhil was saying. But I do think this thing, this point about grace and sadism is important. I, w- I want to talk about what you just mentioned, Moira, the question of justice and what the point of it all is. And I want to quote at a bit of length from this uh, Stuart Hall essay on political correctness from the 90s. Hall writes, quote, PCers are surely correct in foregrounding the neglected questions of gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, language, knowledge, the curriculum, the ethnocentricity of the canon, and so on. If so, then they are also correct in trying to make them the objects of political struggle. They are also surely correct in saying that the reason why politics has traditionally neglected these questions is not through some conscious, rational choice or conspiracy to do so, but because the whole culture works so as to render these social antagonisms politically invisible. But he continues, quote, On the other hand, PC should know that challenging the assumptions built into our ordinary use of language is one thing, policing language is another. Trying to get people collectively to change their behavior towards minorities is one thing, and telling them what they can and can't do is something altogether different. It knows, or should know, that if the way we practice politics doesn't succeed in winning identification, it cannot produce the new political subjects who must actually sustain the practice, no matter how objectively correct the analysis." What we call identities are not created outside of culture and then mobilized by politics. Instead, politics consists fundamentally of the process of forming individuals, whose identities are multiple and divided, into new political subjects, i.e., making people with a whole range of skin colors feel and act black politically, making a variety of different women feminist in their thinking, and winning their identification which will never be total or homogenous to certain political positions. A certain strategy designed to silence problems without bringing them out and dealing with them is dealing with difficult issues at the level of symptom rather than cause. What do you make of Hall's argument that his critique of PC sorts in the 90s, that what they got wrong, of course, wasn't being anti-racist or anti-sexist or anti-homophobic, but that they were missing something about the critical political question of how to remake human subjectivities. And do you think that there's some relevance to, to Hall's analysis today? Like the two parts of it, I, it's, it, I co-sign both of them. Right? I, I admittedly, I don't know, know anywhere near as much about the political stakes of the 90s or of his specific who he's addressing, right? So stipulate that. But like, it is striking how like, if part of the task of, of social justice, we'll call it that. And But note, hey, if you put it in, you have to almost use that word with some difficulty because that's another one of these words that has become sort of hollowed out and made into sort of a slur by precisely these processes of, you know, citationality and sublation or whatever. If you're committed to that, then that does mean like, you know, considering the fact that, well, yes, like the people who wanted to desegregate lunch counters were dismissed as do-gooders, but they wanted to desegregate lunch counters, right? Like like there's a substantive, like that there's a temporality to the nominalist insult coming from the vindictive other that doesn't stand the test of time vis-a-vis the actual stakes of the ethical thing, but the moral imperative and the political task at, at hand. By the same token, though, the second half of what he's saying, which I think is is hard, but I think I think it seems correct to me. It makes me think about like to the extent to which political correctness means it's simply getting people to speak the say the right things. That is partaking in a certain type of also those processes of just like well, let's call the latest. Let's just keep producing new words or refining a vocabulary or not saying a certain thing 
which as we've seen by simply discussing this, like, you know, cancel culture is, is, is just how this machine operates in terms of perpetuating discourse at a disconnect from the reality of certain structural situations of oppression and how to manage that interface. I'm not sure whether that's a question of giving people identitarian categories that sort of have this temporary universal character that uplift them and allow them to, to do certain types of empathetic work, or, or maybe it's part that that must be part of it. But the other thing I'm thinking about here too is sort of interfacing or at least acknowledging or holding or abiding with that pain of of being individuals in this culture, right? Which is so saturated with all this recognize guilt or shame or, or disavowed or otherwise or whatever it is that you the cognitive work you have to do to disavow the fact that trump is treating you like shit even as you're celebrating his treating at other people like shit like the fact that you think that that's all you can get or deserve right and and i'm not, and to be clear like it may not be i'm not asking anyone i don't think it's, it's, it's appropriate to ask any one individual person to necessarily do that work of sitting alongside and extending grace to their oppressor right i think that's a supererogatory demand and but as as a regular as, as, as an ideal or as a concept i do think it speaks to this idea of like well part of how we become individuals and separate from one another is through trauma becoming being an individual means being alone right being a person means being alone and it also means having being fundamentally vulnerable to one another and there's there's a tremendous amount of of potential for layered disappointments and wounds that just sort of build up in that. And, and, and that's pre- present even, and I really wanted to underscore what you said there earlier, Mara, about like part of the dream, I think, or the fantasy of the cancel culture thing is, may I at least for once in my life be relevant enough to be canceled? Where in fact, it's just, no, you'll be 15 minutes, you're in and out of HR, fuck you. Or no, you'll just die. Like there's no, like you'll go home and kill yourself. Like there's no, like, like there's this idea of like, may I please for one moment be something that impinges upon the collective consciousness and that's when a grifter is like, well, yeah, give me $5 and subscribe to Persuasion. And now you can partake in that like by proxy. But there is something about that. There's a pathos to, to being in a position where that's a, a fantasy that you have, right? Or that that's all you think you deserve or that all you think you can participate in. And I think being able to sort of sit with that or engage with the person who is having that fear or that anxiety without saying, oh, you're just whatever and, and engaging in precisely that type of like, like just get sh- either shut up or go away or, or like wait for your whole generation to die or any of these other highly negative ways of like they're pushing people away. But that's, that's a basic human task. It sounds very, very difficult, but seems to be the core matter here. I don't know. That's just my stab at this. I, I want to hear from Nikhil and Moira, but one way to think about it perhaps is that some things about the discourse on Twitter are bad. It's certainly not the existential threat that either centrist liberals like Yasha Munk or so many different figures now on the right frame it as, but what the what people on the left certainly shouldn't confuse dunking or hating on their enemies on Twitter with is actual meaningful substantive politics. And I'm not saying all politics is canvassing, but canvassing is always an amazing gut check and reality check because what you're doing on the doors when you're interacting with median <laughs> American voters or neighbors or whoever you talk whoever you're talking to, whyever you're talking to them, they are typically coming from a place that's rather different from you. They typically have some, often have some views that that you might find offensive. And your goal is like the exact opposite of what is incentivized by the discourse on Twitter. It is not to own them. It is to meet them where they're at, not because where they're at is good, but precisely because you want to bring them from where they're at closer to where you are at. And that is politics. That's 100% right. I mean, I think that's what I, that's what I hear in the hall, who I, 
I think everybody should read extensively. How do you win your opponents over to your position? You know, even your opponents who you have, you, you might hate or who you feel hate you. And I know that it's messy, you know, and again, like, I'm not trying to say that I'm some kind of saint or that people can walk around and like not feel the slings and arrows and want to strike back. Of course they do. You know, but but all of this has become like heavily incentivized by these exploitative tech platforms that basically just use our fights to sort of generate ad, ad revenue. And so it's not an injunction here to like unplug from this because obviously all our log off or whatever people say, I mean, all of this is part of kind of the medium of politics now that we inhabit. But I think remembering that that question of like what the goal is, you know, that that unless we win significant numbers of people who maybe see us and who we see as our opponents to a, a kind of a bigger vision, we we will sink together, you know, eventually, or we'll just kind of pass the baton back to something a little more noxious, you know, than we have now, or maybe a lot more noxious if it if it really degenerates further as it so easily could. You know, so I think the stakes are obviously really, really high for all of this. And and I think that's what he's that's what he's thinking about there. He's he's thinking about the 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 goals are often the goals and the values are often correct and right, but the the reconstructive purpose um, and praxis is often missing um, from from how we, we think about what we're doing on the left. And and I think that's that's a big challenge. It's just it's just a, it's just irreducible. So, but I keep faith with this idea, you know, as as the idea of the left um, that 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 we would want to hold on to. Whereas I think there's a lot of people now who love to kind of you know disidentify with the left, even from the left, you know, like um, I'm not part of this anymore. Like I can somehow exempt myself. You know, we're all in this mess, like, and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to fuck up sometimes too. Um, and we're not all going to see it the same way because we're situated differently. I mean, you know, but we have to have room for that kind of partiality, but that partiality is also about aiming at, at something that's more inclusive, you know, not, not as a horizon, not as something that any of us can, can embody or know in advance, right? You know, this is about you know, this gets into the sort of philosophical ways of thinking about universalism that I think are also important here. But, you know, universalism to some people on the left now is like some kind of, you know, red flag to a bull or something. Like if you say that you're kind of, you know, you're, 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 you know, you're going to eclipse, you know, my specific experience. And I, I think we do need a reconstructive universalism on the left. And I think we have been, I think those of us on the left mostly understand that now, but I think we're still trying to figure out how to assemble the widest, winningest, you know, coalition. And, and obviously in the United States, that's a, that's a deeply challenging proposition given the, the, kind, of, the kind of fusions of, um, of, kind, of kind of racist and sexist uh, kind of interpolations of, 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 of communities and peoples with, with also a disenfranchised class positions. There's a challenge, you know, and especially as I think our segment of the left has become much more uh, affluent. You know, the elephant in the room is always how do you how do you get get back to some kind of some kind of class struggle politics that is not um, that is not reactionary. 
but that but that actually contests in places where people are really really suffering and are 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 also drawn into kind of right-wing explanations of their suffering. One thing I really love about that Hall essay and of course he's so brilliant um is that he he talks about this idea of PC being, you know, politics after the linguistic turn or something and the passage you read he talks about nominalism and, you know, it's a tricky passage to just hear aloud and process. But what I took away thinking about nominalism is like that it's a mistake to think that it's just about language, right? That like just language can fix it. I'm just saying language, it's not just about language. At the same time, language, of course, matters. Um, and I feel like, you know, it's it's not mere language at the same, like language has to be a reflection of praxis and that's being constructed. And so it's like, what's a way to to talk about like legitimate forms of contestation over identity and how we speak to one another. And I think that, you know, um, Hall is such a rigorous, you know, it's like rigorously dialectical, like a lot of the cancel culture conversation. And I think certain critiques of so-called cancel culture to say, well, this is just about language. This is like this school marmish or insincere fastidiousness about language that doesn't actually fix anything about people's material conditions. And it's like, well, you know, um, if these issues around identity are not necessarily trivial, you know, so there's this, but at the same time, it's like, they have to be, it's not as if just fixing the language would fix it. And so what I take away from the critique of its nominalism is this idea that that contestation has to be reconstructing or building new kinds of networks and alliances that can aspire to universality. Um, but I and I do think there's aspects of what gets in, perhaps insincerely denounced as cancel culture that are trying to do that. You know the the demand. <laughs> I'm sort of misappropriating. I think an Assad Hyder quote here, but it's like the demand to not have your media boss like grope you and humiliate you in front of your colleagues is no doubt a universal demand. <laughs> um, it just uh, it just impacts you know certain different people differently. But yeah, I think what I love about the Hall essay is this idea that it's like. It's completely insufficient for a political con- movement to be all about language, but it's like, but also there is no such thing as just language. These meanings and identities are have to be constructed through praxis, and that seems like the thing to to be kept in mind that we have to keep in mind, uh, if that makes sense. Well, I think maybe like a really revealing wrinkle on that note is that the most radical demand that emerged from last summer's protest movement was not nominalist at all. It was an extremely materialist civil rights, black freedom, anti-carceral demand, which was to defund police. It's a demand that cannot be reappropriated by Amazon in the way that Black Lives Matter can or by establishment neoliberal Democrats. So I think it's I think it's instructive to remember that much of the anti-cancel culture discourse and to the extent that, as we've discussed, people, liberals and people on the left play in and are complicit in moving with the right, moving the debate onto the culture war terrain, that that was the 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 the, the key kind of innovation of the protest movement last summer was specifically to rematerialize debates over race that had been dematerialized by both liberal and conservative identitarians. And maybe in that sense, I mean, Nikhil, you said something at the very beginning that I loved, I think, if I got it right, about some of this cancel culture discourse being a sign of the right's weakness, actually. Maybe the hysteria about critical race theory and the 1619 Project is, in a way, 
an attempt in reaction to those very successful uprisings in many ways, the very successful bid to rematerialize, to like shift it back onto the discursive in some way. I love that point. My most hopeful um, thought about this period, you know, really is that we'll recover the impetus to really think about not not transcending race, but actually what it, what it would mean to dismantle, you know, a culture and society constructed on racially invidious lines, you know. And I think that that, that dismantling, right, which is the struggle against racism, has to have as its ultimate view, I think, the disorganization of race as a category. You know, and I think that that is where the canceling of race, right? Um, That race no longer is one of the ways in which we imagine human populations being sorted, right? And and, uh, valued. And I think that some anti-racism has lost sight of that, that it imagines not, you know, a kind of fighting racism with the ultimate goal being to dismantle racial hierarchy altogether and racially described reality altogether, but somehow through an evening out of certain kinds of portions along racial lines. You know, I think that's a liberal idea. That's a liberal reinscription of of racial identity that is, I think, uh, one that we haven't fully broken from. But the radical tradition, including the Black radical tradition, as I understand it, really has been centrally about that aim. You know, I think that is a more, to me, a more concrete example of what I mean by the reconstruction of universalism, which is like you can actually track it through a particular political tradition instead of struggles around around a category and a way of organizing social relationships. And we have the possibility, we, I think, we, I don't know, we who are, who is the we people will always ask, we in this country, I think, are struggling in multiracial, cross-racial ways on new scales with new possibilities, articulating demands that, as Dan just said, you know, have, have kind of citywide purchase, you know, that are about really kind of trying to rethink categories like public safety and harm and um, and homelessness. And these are really crucial to sort of that project. Um, and I think we are gaining more traction with that in this moment in a way that makes me quite hopeful. But I think there is a strong, strong desire to knock us back on our feet in, in every kind of way, either by reinvoking a kind of crime scare or by basically saying, you know, no, you, 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 you wokes, you're, you're the real racists. You know, you basically just hate white people and white people, you need to, you need to reinvest in your whiteness and remember that like white, white people should have pride too. That's the reaction formation that then re reinscribes the whole terrible dynamic that, you know, we've always been in, in the United States. One thing that, that shifting to the ground of culture war does obviously is to make the cultural elites, the elites who really matter, not the economic elites. And that's worked for Republicans and also Democrats in in, in certain ways over the years. But now we have people like Marco Rubio condemning woke capital, which simultaneously takes aim at both purported cultural and business elites, tying the two together. What do you make of that? Does this signal an important Trumpian shift in the culture war? The woke capital comment was about tech, right? What was the woke capital thing about most recently? 
like a few days ago. I think some of it has been around around Major League Baseball pulling oh, right. out of um, Georgia. No, no, the, the, the woke, cap, woke capital is another one of those phrases that's, I, I'm going back to, again, that Hans Yost line where it's like, I want to reach for something and just club myself over the head every time I hear it. Like, there's something, and, 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 but I do think it is, and it's funny, you hear it from certain, like, post-left people too, right? Like, it, it's, it does, though, feel like it's post-Trump in the sense that they're trying to get, hit this frisson of, like, pissing people off and therefore that will somehow validate it as a structural analysis, but it does feel tired and evacuated and incoherent, right? It does, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's much like Marco Rubio himself, frankly, and Ted Cruz too, like these sort of sad sack deflated people. Who they're not, <laughs> they're tacking to a win that's, that's no longer in their sale. Absolutely. And like when, when Josh Hawley tweets yesterday, we, we are the party of the working class. That is the future. And it's kind of like, you you got to be kidding me. Like, like how are you going to be the party of the working class? Like, you know, more than half the working class, way more than half the working class hates you, right? You are not the party of the working class. So they're, they're, they're evoking kind of this, this, this kind of class discourse and this kind of, um, this kind of way of talking about capitalism or capital. Most people don't even know what capital is. That strikes me as, again, kind of a sign of, yeah, like, I agree with what Pat just said. I mean, it's, it's kind of incoherent, but I do think things are shifting on the right. You know, things are shifting on the right in ways that would be worth paying some, taking some more time to talk about. I know we don't have the time to talk about it now. You know, they're, they're trying to find their way either to something that is more clearly like fascism or, or something that is, is going to be about making an accommodation, a bigger accommodation with a kind of a, a, a turn away from neoliberalism that is more a kind of, kind of social welfareist, you know, uh, and, and, and sort of within, within conservative idioms. Thinking through this now, I think what they're pretending to do is to wed social conservatism, I'm talking about the Holly types, and a certain sort of social conservative and a certain type of white nationalism with working class anti-big business politics to like do this ultimately potent Synthesis, But what we learned under Trump is that they actually will not or cannot cross big business in any economic, in any substantive economic way. So what they're doing is pretending that they're doing this synthesis, but what they're actually doing is just extending the culture war spectacle to performative attacks on big business that will not actually in any meaningful way change their bedrock orientation economically to big business. I wonder if we could take this term as like it, it just it, it's a, they're trying to tap that affect, right? They're trying to give you like here is here are two things you hate, so that we can access your hate. And the fact that structurally speaking, it, it makes as much sense as I don't know, like the antifa in the C-suite, right? Or like the Marxist who secretly runs a bank, like it's incoherent and it just has no traction. But like on some level, it's interesting. It does evince the fact that they do seem to they are grasping the fact that people do feel disenfranchised by co- corporate America, right? And and they also are clearly trying to make a bid for that racial grievance, which is, you know, basically what woke means at this point. And they're telling people you should hate it in the way that you hate gay people, not in the way you organize a union to fight corporations. Like, it's the same category of, of the other <laughs> that you are just going to dislike in a cultural grievance way. And I do think, I mean, not to be trivializing, but I do think we can't understate the, like, sort of mimetic like qualities of these phrases and the extent to which they're based on certain recombinations. I mean, so is 
of course, the right, I mean, it's sort of built into the structure of reaction, right? That it's like identity politics. What about white identity politics? Diversity, what about diversity of thought? Like this kind of like, I am rubber, you are glue thing is a very old thing. <laughs> but I see, I'd never heard of the quota queen, Nikhil. Uh, I'd never heard this phrase quota queen. And I was like, quota queen, it's alliterative. Like it works at this very linguistic sort of meme level and woke capital strikes me as another another one of those things. And, I, and, with, and this is probably too, again, probably a bit, not, it's probably a bit over, not quite true. But when the critical race theory started, stuff started last summer, whenever that was, I was like, well, they just already hate critical theory. Like they have this whole thing about critical theory. So it's like critical race theory. It's like, you know, none of them are reading any critical race theory. Like they couldn't name a critical race theorist. It's about like creating these objects of ire and packaging them in the in these particular ways that as Patrick is suggesting are like clearly affectively resonant um and it just that's what how woke capital strikes me that it's another one of these these memes that has this like mashup quality to it and in fact again i think with pc this is true with so i think actually this might be something that unites the right wing and liberal centrist versions but i often think the point of it is also to like reassure dad while he's reading the wall street journal that he doesn't need to know anything about it and he's not an idiot for not knowing it in fact the people who know about it are stupid like don't worry about it it's critical race theory (laughs) you know um so anyway i think yeah woke capital is just like another one of these coinages um mashing things up that is actually a reassurance to the reader or listener that you don't need to know too much about it but it can become this like cathode of affect that already exists and just gets reorganized around it. One other thing in my shit I really want to touch on before we uh, finish up lightning round. Patrick kind of pointed to this earlier that a lot of people really seem to relish being canceled. Um, After all, Barry Weiss canceled herself from the New York Times when no one else was actually canceling her. And there's this related phenomenon of people like enthusiastically changing their their politics and attitudes for the what the worse once they feel they've been permanently canceled. I'm thinking here of like Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi. What does it say about the discourse right now that there's this set of people who so thrive, who just lean into cancellation so hard? Um, so much of this discourse just feels so mutually constitutive of this giant hell website that we all live on so much of the time it's the last media career getting canceled it's like the best the best move you could you could make i'm gonna i'm gonna sound like a certain slovenian when i say this but it seems to suggest that the entire discourse is decadent and perverse right i mean like there is something about it that like it's and it really, it, I do, I, I do mean, I'm using like when I invoke hysteria, I mean that very sincerely. Like there is a kind of like florid acting out of this like simultaneous having power but disavowing power, and this weird sort of like precocious appeal to the other to please cancel me, right? Remember when Chris Matthews had that thing where he's like, like all these Zoomers, they're going to execute people like the me. Bernie, in the, park. the Bernie supporters <laughs> are going to line him up and shoot him in Central Park. I think he said. And I just, he was, it, it's so, and it was so lurid. It was, it was like, it was like he, was, he really wanted this to happen somehow. Like it's a kind of like a sort of, it was definitely like set off certain like hackles, but like one thing that I, I've been thinking about in light of everything that you all have been saying and there's something interesting about how the internet and, 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 and social media discourse in particular, which I guess you could say is like a hystericization machine maybe, is like, it's interesting how even as like neoliberal austerity has been all about like 
squeezing more bloods from stone, right? And 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 enforcing these normalizing ever more grim indifference towards towards human disposability, right? And and I I think that's it's interesting insofar as I think that's naturalized in the market. And and I do think like there's I think there's actually a line from Freud about this, how like like the opposite of of hate and love aren't opposites, but the real opposite to love is indifference. Right. And there's something about it. There's the inhumanity of that indifference, like as on a political economic scale. It's interesting how that's that's met a kind of mirroring in these online discourses where it actually seems like malice and vindictiveness are inexhaustible, renewable resources that they don't exhaust themselves. They exhaust individual people. They destroy people. Right. But somehow that you can keep going back to that well in a way that's not zero sum. And, and, and hell, there is, I don't even know how to start on like the digital currency thing about it, but the same machines that are providing us this stuff are now producing wellsprings of value while destroying the world itself. There is, there, it, it's a flight into some type of, of, of like this affective production of the worst possible emotions that are toxic both in the symbolic and the real at the same time. And I, I do feel like th- that you got to traverse that somehow. I don't know how you do it, but I definitely don't want to get caught by it. Pat's comment just now was so brilliant. I don't, I, I can't, I can't add to it. Um, but I do think just to kind of maybe circle back to where I started as a sort of a final, a kind of a final comment on this. It's a moment of left resurgence that we're in. We are, we are in a moment of the, of the recomposition of the discourse as well. And so we are revisiting, you know, some of this um, in interesting ways, but we're revisiting it with different possibilities than, than existed in the 1990s, which is, I think, amazing. Um, and, in, and, and in this way, we do see these odd reversals happening all the time, sometimes very, very quickly. And I think we have to be open to them. I noted yesterday when uh, I think it was Megyn Kelly who tweeted out, you know, uh, critical race theory is state sanctioned racism. And I was like, whoever thought Megyn Kelly would say the word state-sanctioned racism? You know, it's like, I'm happy to talk to you about state-sanctioned racism. Do you think people know what state-sanctioned racism is? Here's a few examples of it. You know what I mean? So, like, a lot of this is now happening on a terrain that has been created by the left and been created by left movements. I think Moira has pointed all that out in such interesting ways, how all of these terms come from, like, kind of insurgent black culture, wokeness, cancel, you know, political correctness comes out of out of left movements. I mean, the right is constantly parasitic. This is kind of goes to Corey, Corey Robbins thesis, you know, parasitic on a, on a kind of a kind of a, a left and a politics of fear that it builds off of a, a kind of an anxiety around the insurgency that, that it sees happening. But I think for maybe the first time in my, my life, I, I, I feel like we have some we have some wings or some wind in our sails and, and a possibility to do something with this. But I, I appreciate that you, you, you asked us to have this conversation because I think that we, we should continue it and have it with more bravery, uh, less fear of our own cancellation, mindful of, um, you know, the sensitivity of others always. And I think politeness and good matters, as Moira pointed out, is always a virtue for those of us trying to do things with other people on the left. Um, and we shouldn't tolerate people who aren't who, who who aren't acting in that spirit. 
you know, or who are who are crossing lines that we know are unacceptable to cross, which is, you know, racist, sexist, abusive behavior. Like, I think we can we can identify that. But we also all know that there's a much wider area of gray that we need to navigate in many, in many instances have kind of started to lose our ability to do that very well. Um, I think in part because of the way we find ourselves um, locked into these, these heavily surveilled kind of viral binary spaces of like hate. And, um, you know, and, and obviously those spaces are always gonna be spaces that limit what we can accomplish and do. Um, and we have to break out of them, even as we have to figure out you know, how to use them better to our own ends. Parting shots from Moira and Patrick in no particular order. Yeah, I just want to think, you know, because I've um, been trying to think about these discursive formations or through this whole conversation, we've been talking about them in a longer historical view. And I think at the most macro level, right, a claim that one is being silenced or that, you know, one is being canceled is always a bid to establish a different kind of discursive space or like a di- it motivates the the establishment of another kind of sphere. I think part of what's so politically insidious about the way the right and Trump in particular and right in general, and I'll have to think more on the Iraq war liberals, but how they deploy this language of silencing and canceling and common sense is that it actually, they deployed in a way that precludes um, democratic debate or contestation actually, you know, when, a judge says Trump University did illegal stuff and Trump is like, he's saying that because he's Mexican and people are like, well, you can't say that. And he's like, well, just common, you're going to say, I can't say that, but it's common sense. Um, he establishes a sphere of people for whom that could be common sense. And that's like outside debate, right? It's sort of interpolate isn't the right verb, but it's sort of retrospect. <laughs> yeah, I guess that is it. When, and again, I'm, I always think about media histories and technology histories. And I think it's no accident that in addition to happening in these moments of political realignment, these kinds of conversations tend to happen in moments of institutional realignment too. We think about like the post, the like privatization of the university and the creation of all these think tanks, you know, that's happening in the, in the eighties and the nineties, sort of the loss of the Cold War idea of the university and this this bid to establish control over what can be said there, um, sort of right wing knowledge production things that are happening, um, and then now with Jonathan Chait, you know, I think of like Katie Royfe and Harper's being like all these young women in Google Docs and on Twitter are saying this this stuff, you know, and that it's like it's this debate over who gets to say what where and what's like legitimate to assert um, as a claim, and I think that. If there is something that's unproductive in the contemporary conversation around cancel culture, including among liberals and the left, maybe it's about an overemphasis on on language on its own, which is never the point. And if there is something productive or hopeful, it is about how social movement, new social movements and new kinds of media have like opened up these new forms of contestation. And we just have to try to not get distracted or shut down um because i think it is a bid to reestablish hegemony you know when like harper's in hegemony it's kind of funny and embarrassing but like the new york times is when let's say the new york times is like oh well it's ridiculous to be talking about your bad date on twitter it's like they're trying to establish rules about who gets to say what where what is a legitimate subject of public and political interest and i think 
the utopian kernel to hold on from all this is like how those terms are being renegotiated by new social movements. Um, and I loved what Nikhil said earlier about, what was it, canceling race or remaking race. But it's like, of course, that doesn't mean just changing language. That means changing like long <laughs> histories of capitalism and violence and bureaucratic categories and, you know, lending practices and all kinds of material things. So I think that I just bear in mind that I think that these kinds of moral panics around this kind of issue happen when a certain group or groups are trying to shut down a new contestation and the fact that it's happening so vigorously means that there is new opportunity and sort of space being contested. And it's about language, but language is never just about language. Um, so that's what I take away from it that seems more hopeful than a bunch of us trying to own one another in order to enrich Twitter. <laughs> I, I, I do enjoy owning people on Twitter. But I will own that. <laughs> You're I, good just, at it. I have well, they, I, they, it's, right, I don't, it, it's I'm trying to celebrate certain bad ethics of my own, but, but I, what I did, I am actually just processing what, what all three of you have just said. And I, I'm finding myself in, in this, in the really remarkable position of feeling very hopeful and good. And also that like, I would enter the idea that I would enter into a conversation or that we people could have a conversation about this, like the, the dead horse that has, I mean, yeah, like I'm, I don't even know how to describe that dead horse, like like the, the extent to which it's been flayed and complete. But like I'm reaching for Dostoevsky or Nietzsche on this boat, right? Either it's the horse you want to see and that makes you weep, or it's the horse that you see being brutalized in the street and that pushes you over the edge. I don't know. It's beyond dead. But the idea that we could have a conversation about cancel culture, which is the most tired and horrible thing, and yet somehow emerge from it not circulating just bad affects and also like I my, my personally not like having an aneurysm or just like screaming at Andrew <laughs> Sullivan or something. It's um it's a remarkable feeling and I just want to abide in that. And, and, and I just want to express my gratitude for it. That, that's all I wanted to say. So thank you. Well, thank you all very, very much. Uh, Moira Weigel, Nikhil Palsing, Patrick Blanchfield. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. This was so fun. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. It's a blast. Moira Weigel is a postdoctoral fellow at the Data and Society Institute, incoming professor at Northeastern University, founding editor of Logic Magazine, and is currently writing a book on anti-political correctness. Nikhil Paul Singh is professor of social and cultural analysis and history at New York University, whose most recent book is Race in America's Long War. Patrick Blanchfield is an associated faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. His book, Gunpower, the Structure of American Violence is forthcoming from Verso. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the dispute over the reality or non-reality of thinking that is isolated from practice is a purely scholastic question. While other podcasts similarly interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. And also, if it is on iTunes or wherever, please leave us a review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really introduces us to new listeners is you introducing us to potential listeners who you know in real life, friends, family, whatever. 
please spread the word and make propaganda for us. And do, last but certainly not least, find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Thank you.